Number one, pretty simple question, what are you living for? What are you living for? And let me tell you what I mean by that. What is your purpose in life? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What, what is, is the driving force? Is it family? Um, approval of others? Maybe money? Pleasure? A lot of different things can be what we're living for. Sometimes you'll hear someone say, my life is, and then they'll fill in the blank. Or this is my life. My family is my life. My job is my life. And what they mean by that is that's, that's what they're living for. That's really the, the thing behind what they're living for. And really the second question that I have is, is kind of just rephrasing the same idea. It's what is the driving force behind your life? Uh, what is it that, for instance, caused you to come to church this morning? Did you do it out of obligation? Did you do it maybe just because it's a habit? So what's the driving reason behind the, what you do? Why do you do what you do? This is the, what these two questions are really getting at. And I think this is very much the, the answer that we see in Galatians 2.20. It's all about our lives. So the title of my message this morning is The Life Which I Now Live. What is the life which I now live? What motivates the life which I now live? And that's really what Galatians 2.20 seeks to answer for us. Now, I love the Bible. I hope you do too. I, I think it's pretty obvious that you do. <laughs> you're memorizing Scripture. You're, you're trying to order everything that you do based on Scripture. And, uh, and, and so as I, my love for the Bible drives me to try to be true as I can to what the Scripture teaches. In order to do that, I want to make sure that I'm always looking at things in context. Uh, there's an old saying, a, a text without a context is a pretext. You know, the old story of uh, a fellow that decided he was going to find out what God wanted him to do in his life, and he opened his Bible up and just stuck his finger down and looked for a verse, and it said Judas went and hanged himself. <laughs> now, well, that's not too good, so he did it again and opened it up and put his finger down, and it said, go and do thou likewise. So that's not the best way to find out God's will. <laughs> you know, we want to know what the context is. What is, what is Scripture teaching us? And, and so when we look at Galatians 2.20... It appears in the book of Galatians, right? So that's pretty obvious. So what is the book of Galatians about? Well, the book of Galatians is a letter that Paul wrote to the churches of the region of Galatia. And he was writing this letter in answer to an issue that was going on in that community. What was happening was these were Gentile churches. Paul and Barnabas had gone and spread the gospel and these churches had popped up and and God had done marvelous things among these Gentiles, but they were not people from a Jewish background. Unfortunately, there were folks who we call the Judaizers that would come in to these Gentile churches and they would begin to tell them, it's great that you accepted the Messiah, Jesus, but there are all these other things that you need to understand too, and you need to do all these laws, and you need to be circumcised, and you need to practice all these 
traditions of the fathers and all these things. And so they were trying to teach people that Jesus was great, but Jesus wasn't enough. And so Paul and Barnabas began to try to fight that battle, and they said, look, we need to go, we need to, go to Jerusalem, and we need to get with the apostles, and we need to get an answer for this situation. And so he had written this letter back to the church at Galatia, or the churches in the, Gal- the Galatian churches, to encourage them. And if you look in chapter 1, verse 1, uh, just a few verses there, he says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul saying, my apostleship was not something I came up with on my, on my own. This is something that Jesus Christ has done in me. He's called me to be an apostle. And, verse 2, all the brethren which are with me unto the churches at Galatia. So, not only me, but I'm representing a team who has ministered to you, and we're writing now back to you, grace to you, his, our, his greeting that he often wrote, grace and peace to you from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that we might be deliver, might deliver us, that he might deliver us, excuse me, from this present world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So there's his introduction. But then immediately in verse 6, he gets into what he's going to talk about. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ into another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And so he's writing this letter because folks have come in and perverted the gospel. And he wants to make sure and set the record straight. He wants to make sure they understand. So verse 11, he says, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, I am certifying the gospel to you. And you have been preached another gospel since I left, but I need to bring you back. I need to bring you back to the gospel. The gospel is of utmost importance to the believer. It's what we believe, right? It's how we are saved. What is this gospel? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you want to turn there, that's fine. I'll just read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 4, Paul says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, in which ye stand, by which ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. And here it is. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and he was raised again the third day, according to the Scriptures. That is the gospel of Christ. That's what we believe. That's how we were saved, by believing in Christ, in the gospel of Christ. And that was the message that Paul preached. And so, 
this letter he's writing to the Galatians is to remind them of the gospel and bring them back to the gospel. Now, that's the context of the book of Galatians. Let's talk about the context of chapter 2. In chapter 2 the book of Galatians, Paul reminds them about this incident where he went, just as I referred to a few minutes ago, he and Barnabas went back to Jerusalem. And when they were in Jerusalem, they talked to the apostles in the Jewish church, and they talked to them about this problem that was happening. And the apostles wrote a letter to be given to the Gentile churches to help them to understand that they didn't have to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. But salvation came by faith in Christ alone. And so they got that letter and they came back. And Paul is referring to that in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Then fourteen years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, and I went by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Remember, this whole thing centered around the religious practices of the Jews, one of them being circumcision. And Titus, who was a Gentile, went with him to Jerusalem, and he said he wasn't circumcised. And it was for this reason, and that because of false brethren unawares, verse 4, brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might, be, might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, for that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So everything Paul and Barnabas did when they went to Jerusalem, and everything that they were preaching and teaching, was in order to preserve the liberty in Christ, in order to preserve the power and the authority of the gospel of Christ. So that you and I today, living in East Tennessee, in 2023, have liberty in Christ and know that our salvation is dependent upon what Jesus did for us on the cross alone without any works that we accomplish. And our faith is in Him and Him alone. Paul fought that battle for us. Not just Paul, but those that were with him. Many believers have fought and died for that battle. And throughout history, it has always been a battle. The devil wants to raise some other gospel up to try to pervert the truth, the gospel of Christ. But the gospel is simple and it's profound. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, that is the, the, the context in which this verse, chapter 2, verse 20, appears. But I want you to notice one more thing in chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. After Paul and Barnabas had had this issue dealt with in Jerusalem, there was an incident that took place that Paul tells us about with Peter. Peter, who preached on the day of Pentecost, and thousands were saved. Peter, who was a wonderful follower of Christ. But look at this in verse 11. 
But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they, notice this phrase, walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Imagine that an important leader in your denomination came to visit and sat and had meals with you, but then when some other leaders from that church or from the, from the denomination, denominational leaders came, somebody, he was, he was uh, concerned about what they thought. He thought, you know what? I don't want to sit with those East Tennesseans because I don't want this guy to think that I'm like them. And so he wouldn't sit with you anymore the next meal you had. How would that make you feel? You see, that's exactly what happened. Peter was a pillar of the church. Peter was an apostle. We all love Peter. I love Peter because Peter's like me. He sticks his foot in his mouth every time he gets a chance. I'm good at that too. Peter always felt like he had to say something when he should have just been quiet. <laughs> but, but Peter was a great servant of the Lord. But you see what Paul said was happening with Peter? When certain came from James, he separated himself, fearing them. See, he was worried more about what they thought of him. These Jewish Christians who still hadn't fully grasped the freedom that came in Christ to all people, Jew and Gentile. He was worried more about what they thought of him than he was about caring for the believers, Jews and Gentiles, who were part of those congregations. And Paul saw exactly through what was going on. He said, Peter, if you're going to live like a Gentile when these guys aren't here... <laughs> Well, you know, you're going to sit down and have a ham sandwich when nobody's around. But when James' cohort comes over here, you start acting different. Why do you compel these Gentiles to live like Jews do? And he just exposed the whole thing. But notice what he said that Peter and others who were following Peter's lead, even including Barnabas, were doing. They were not living uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. Now, once you think about that for a minute, we just said that the gospel is simple. It's the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Simple. But the gospel is not just a creed that you believe and you belong to a church that all agrees that we believe that's the gospel. That's the, that's the doctrine that we believe. That's just a, something written on a piece of paper 
And we believe that. We assent to that being true. It's not just that. You see, if the gospel is something you embrace, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, in the gospel, it changes everything. It changes everything. When you join a, a local church, it's not joining like joining the, the YMCA or the Kiwanis Club, you know. The local church, the church of Jesus Christ, is unique. It's different. See, the gospel of Christ, it, it, it's not like signing up for a political party. Well, I, I believe in these certain principles. This is my platform. No, it is something that governs your life. It is the central driving force in who you are. That is what the gospel is meant to be. See, when Peter, when Peter was saying with his mouth, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus died for my sins, that he rose again. That was a truth that he believed. But when he was acting this way with these Gentile Christians who had trusted in the same Christ he trusted in, and he was separating from them because he was worried about what someone else would think, he was not living in accordance with the truth that he said he believed. Does that make sense? You see, the gospel should affect the way you live your life. It, it's, it's, the, it's the filter through which you look at everything. The gospel of Jesus Christ. It, in our church uh, at West Park, we have a, a counseling ministry, and I'm involved in the counseling ministry. And one of the things I love about that counseling ministry is, is it, it, the approach is it's, it's biblically based. It's not, psychology is not really part of it at all. It's all based on the gospel. Because the truth of the gospel affects everything. It affects how I treat others. It affects how I think about myself. It affects the choices that I make day to day. It affects everything. And so now, just to just to give you a little bit of warning, th this was just my introduction. Okay, we haven't gotten into the message yet. So my time starts, and no, I'm just kidding. I'll be nice. <laughs> but I wanted us to understand the context of Galatians 2.20. Because Galatians 2.20, I want to break it up into three parts, okay? We'll read the whole verse again, and then we're going to break it up into three parts because Galatians 2.20 capsulizes everything we've just been talking about and helps us to apply it. Okay? Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I said we're going to break this up into three parts. Number one, I am crucified with Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Now, Paul is writing this, but what he's saying is true of him is also true of all believers. So we need to understand what it means. 
What does it mean when Paul says, and when you and I can say the same thing, I am crucified with Christ? Now, I'm no Greek scholar, but I can look things up, okay? So I'm going to share with you some things about Greek. Um, Greek verb tenses and, and, and definitions and things like that. Mostly verb tenses in this, in this case. The word here that is translated, I am crucified with Christ, it is in the perfect tense, perfect Greek tense. Now, the Greek language has uh, features that we don't have in English, and sometimes it's hard to give it an exact translation. But what we typically do with something like this is we would say something has happened or uh, we, we would say, I have been crucified with Christ. And that's a little closer to the meaning, but still not, still not fully the meaning. The perfect tense means something has happened in the past, and it has a continuing effect. So an event has happened sometime in time past, and now the, the consequences of that are continuing to be true. So it's almost like saying, I have been crucified with Christ, and I stand crucified with Christ. I now am a person who is crucified with Christ. An event happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. That is an event that happened in a time. Now, I, as a believer in Christ, stand in the reality of that. I am crucified. That's what Paul says. I am crucified with Christ. The second part of this is the mood of the language. We have uh, a tense. We, have, we understand verb tenses in, in English, but moods are a different thing. Uh, a mood, the per, it's in the uh, indicative mood, which just indicates that it was a specific time that this took place. A specific time in history that this took place. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he said, it is finished. It is finished. He accomplished it on the cross. He did his work, and his work was complete. You weren't even born yet. I wasn't even born yet. And yet he fully accomplished the work to save us on that cross. Nothing else remained to be done. And then it's in the passive voice, which means that it was done to Paul. In other words, Paul did not cause this to happen, but it happened to Paul. The subject has something done to them by the verb. That's the, the idea of the, or the uh, passive voice. So Christ died on the cross. He accomplished all the work. You and I get to just be the recipients of it. We don't do the work ourselves. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. Jesus did the work. Now, we understand that in terms of our salvation. Jesus died. It's called, theologians like to use the word substitutionary death, or vicarious means the same thing. Substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Die, Jesus died in your place. And what that means is you had the sentence of death upon you. Because the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. 
you and I sin and we earn wages for the sin that we commit. What are the wages that we earn? Death. Jesus died in our place. Colossians talks about the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us being nailed to his cross. Just imagine all of the sins that you have ever committed. What are sins? Well, sins are obviously anything we do that is in violation of God's word, right? God says, thou shalt not, and we do it, that's sin. But you know, sin is also the things that we don't do that God said to do. Those are sins of omission. And then there are things that are just not acting in faith. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. I mean, we sin in thought. We sin in deed. We sin in action. We sin in, in, in uh, inaction. We are really good at being sinners. We've had a lot of practice. We were born sinners. We practice being sinners. We're sinful people. And yet Jesus Christ took all that list of all those sins and it was nailed to the cross when he was nailed to the cross. He literally stepped in your place, in your shoes, and took your place on the cross. That's the principle of substitution. He was the substitute for you and the substitute for me. But this principle of substitution has more application than just in our salvation. Remember, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. I stand crucified. I died with Christ. He talks about this in, in Romans chapter 6. He says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we, also shall, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now, when we think about that, what he's talking about in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, he's talking about entering into Christ, when you come into Christ. And the word baptize literally means to dip or to immerse. Um, the translators of the King James Version did not translate the word. They actually took a Greek word, baptizo, and turned it into an English word. And Because baptism means immersion. That's what it means. You know, when we're immersed into Christ, it doesn't mean we came into Christ when we were baptized. We're not saved by baptism. We're saved by faith in Christ, right? But baptism is a picture of what happens at salvation. What happens in baptism is we are witnessing that when we're standing in the water, we have died with Christ. When we go under, we have been buried with Christ. When we come back up out of the water, we have been risen with Christ. It's a symbol. It's a symbol of a spiritual reality that happened when you were saved. When you were saved, you died with Christ. I am crucified with Christ. I stand crucified with Christ. My old man was buried. And when I was raised 
up again out of the grave, I am a new creature in Christ. Hallelujah. I have been made new by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to say that we should now walk in newness of life. You see, our gospel does not just get our names written in heaven. It does that when we believe. But the gospel gives us a new life now. A new life now. You have a new life in Christ now. And so it's our decision to walk in the newness of that life. That's what it means to understand that I am crucified with Christ. My old man has died. And now I live. Now I'm new. I, uh, I was born, in my family, I was born in a kind of an uh, odd situation. It's not as odd now as it was when I was a kid. But my parents, they were married. My mother and my stepdad were married and they had four children. And then they divorced. And they, uh, my mom, did, my dad, did, my stepdad didn't get remarried, but my mom got remarried to my dad, had me. Divorced him, and by the time I was a year and a half, she had remarried her first husband. Now, I know, my, that just makes your head spin, doesn't it? My kids have always asked, now, who are we related to? You know, I'm always trying to explain it to my kids, and now they're, you know, my, my daughter's now 40 years old, and she still doesn't understand it. But what that created for me in my life was I was the youngest of five kids in this household. I was the only one with the name, my name was Root. James Allen Root. My father's name was James Allen Root, and I was James Allen Root II. And so it was just hard to explain in the 70s because most everybody I knew, but they had the same parents. You know, they didn't have any of this. And now I know that's a lot more common, but back then it was very uncommon. So I was always, people would say, why is your brother's name different than yours? You know, and it was just so odd and difficult. So when I was 11, my, my parents started talking about this, and my mom uh, and dad came to me, and they said, uh, your stepdad wants to adopt you. Now, they never called him my stepdad. He was always my dad. And my stepdad adopted me, and he gave me a new name. I remember fifth grade, sitting down with a notebook paper, practicing my new signature, that new name. Gave me a new identity. I became a new person in a sense. And I think about that a lot when I think about my relationship with Jesus Christ. When I came to Jesus Christ, the old man was dead. Now, if you can't find anything that has to do with me named James Root anymore. Now, I fortunately, uh, I knew my real dad. Didn't seem a lot, but I got to know him better in my adult years, and he didn't know the Lord, and I was able to lead him to Christ before he died. I'm just so thankful for that. And I love my dad, and I have two sisters that were his daughters from a previous marriage, and, so I, and I love them dearly. And I'm not saying that they were evil and the Lynches were good, but what I am saying is that God gave me a new identity. He helped me to feel like I belonged in the family. I didn't belong in the family before. I was the odd man out because I really didn't have the same name. I didn't have the same identity. But he gave me a new identity. When I came to Christ, Christ gave me a new identity. And now my identity, who I am, not just what happened to me, 
Not just that I know I've got my quote-unquote ticket to heaven. No, who I am is a child of God. I'm now in God's family. I now belong to Him. I am crucified with Christ. My old man's dead. And now I have a new life to walk in. A new life. And so that brings us to the, to the second phrase. He says, I am crucified with Christ. And he says, nevertheless, I live. Nevertheless, I live. Well, obviously, Paul's alive when he's writing this. He's saying, I'm dead. I mean, I'm crucified. But I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm, I'm, nevertheless, I live. You know, we're all living, right? Tomorrow morning, you have to go to work. You have to do dishes. You have to pay bills. You have to live in this world, right? You have to live a, a, a life, and you deal with things every day. You deal with sickness, and you deal with heartache, and you deal with loss, and you deal with joys, and you deal with birthdays and anniversaries, and you deal with hurt feelings, and you, you just deal with life. You have to live your life, right? Nevertheless, I live. I've heard that phrase, you're, you know, somebody is so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. I really don't think that's possible. Because if you're rightly heavenly minded, it will really change how earthly good you are. If you're rightly heavenly minded, if you realize there's a spiritual reality that connects with the physical reality. Both are realities. Sometimes we think, well, now I've got to get back to the real world. I've got to go back to work now. Had church on Sunday. And next Sunday, I'll have church again. But Monday through Saturday, I've got to do stuff like mow the lawn. I've got to pay my bills. I've got to do my job. I've got to go to school. I've got to whatever. But folks, we don't have two lives as Christians. We have one life. Nevertheless, I live. But I live as a person who is crucified with Christ. The way I approach life is different now because of the spiritual reality that intersects with the physical reality. How does that happen? Well, that brings us to the last phrase. The life which I now live. The life which I now live. That's, that's the life. I'm living a life now. You know, I have responsibilities. I have church, and I have a family, and I have all these things. The life which I now live, how do I live that life? I live by the faith of the Son of God. I live by faith. And we watched a video a little while ago from the missionary that you all support and who's been such a blessing to you all. And sometimes we think, we're sitting in the pew, and we think, those guys live by faith. Our pastor lives by faith. But I don't have to live by faith. I've got a job. <laughs> yeah, you do. You live by faith. The life which I now live, this is for every Christian. The life which I now live. How do I live this life? The life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
oftentimes I'll have someone I'm counseling and I'll talk to them about the sp these spiritual realities and they'll say, yeah, but I've still got to deal with this. That, I know that that's fine for later on in heaven, but right now I've got, I've got to deal with this. Well, yeah, yeah. But you deal with this by faith. You deal with life by faith. How do you, how do, you do that? How do, you, how do you pay bills by faith? How do you go to work by faith? How do you live your life? The life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Well, first of all, you need to understand that He changed everything. That when He saved you, He didn't just save you to get you out of hell. It's not just a fire escape. Salvation is not just an escape, get out of hell free card. Salvation is a new life. He purchased you with His own blood. You belong to Him. And He loved you. You know, it's heartbreaking to see what people do with love in our culture. All kinds of things are called love. We're told now you can't help who you love. You know the Bible commands us to love? We're commanded to love? How can you command a feeling if that's all it is? You can't command a feeling. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my what? Commandments. John tells us that the way we know love, he says, herein is love. Not that we love God but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I have two sons and I have two daughters. Two different times I have thought that I lost one of my sons, but each, each of them. My youngest son, Ian, when he was 12 years old, I, I'm, I'm a drywall contractor, and uh, I took him on a job site with me because I went on job sites with my dad when I was that age. Matter of fact, I worked with my dad, started working with my dad around that time regularly. And my wife wanted him out of the house. You know, he was driving her nuts. School had just let out. So I took him to a job site with me, and it was a job in Teleco Village. Large house had an elevator shaft. And he fell down the elevator shaft. Three floors crushed his skull. His life flighted to UT, spent two weeks there, two weeks at Patricia Neal. Praise God, he's fine now. He's, he's uh, 29 <laughs> years old now, works for me. Fine young man, got a little girl, and uh, I love him to death. But I thought I lost him. Not only did I think I lost him, I knew it was my fault because I took him there. I was so beyond devastated. That was my son. And yet, God the Father gave his son on purpose for you and for me. 
That's love. Love is not some mysterious emotion that you fall out of and fall into. That may be infatuation, it may be lust, it may be a lot of things, but it's not love. Not agape love, not the highest kind of love. No, love produces action. Love is sacrificial. Jesus loves you. There's a story about a great theologian who was dying on his deathbed. They asked him what was the greatest theological truth he ever learned. And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Your Savior loves you. He loves you. And he proved it. No one else has ever proven their love for you like Jesus. And so when you're tempted to put someone or something ahead of Jesus, realize how much he loves you. And he gave himself for you. And so when I live by faith in the Son of God, it's not just a creed, it's a person. It's the one who loves me ultimately. Highest love possible. And so I live by faith. What does this faith do? What does this faith do? What well, causes me to act? Remember Hebrews 11? The great hall of faith? The phrase by faith appears time and time and time again. By faith what? By faith Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By faith Abraham went out to a place where he didn't know where he was going because God called him to go. He went by faith. By faith. Faith produces action. That's what James is talking about. James is not disagreeing with, with Paul when he says faith without works is dead. He's just telling you genuine faith produces work. If you really believe something, you're going to act in accordance with it. So how do you live? You live by the faith of the Son of God. Because Jesus died for you and he gave it all for you, that affects how you make decisions in your life. It affects the priorities of your life. It affects everything in your life. I live by the faith of the Son of God. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. He said, For the love of Christ constraineth us. That means controls us. The love of Christ. Not the, not the love I have for Christ. The love Christ has for me. The love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge. Paul sat around and thought about this. Okay, We thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead. And that he died for all, that... They which live should not henceforth live for themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. You see, the real issue is now that we stand crucified with Christ. We have been crucified with Christ and we have been risen from the dead with Christ. Now that we have a new life in Christ, we are in Christ. No longer do we live for me. Now we live for Him. We don't live for the approval of others. Like Peter was doing, unfortunately. 
when he separated from those Gentile believers. He was living for the approval of others. He was afraid they'd go back to James and tell on him. He was more concerned about that than he was concerned about the effect that that would have on those young believers in Christ and how it would alienate them and how it could ultimately hurt the cause of Christ in their life. That's what he was doing. I love Peter. I look forward to seeing him in heaven. But that's exactly what he was doing, and that's what Paul called him on. He was living for others. He was really living for himself instead of living for Jesus. And let me tell you, that's a very practical understanding of the way living for Christ, for you and I, applies to you today. How do you make your decisions? Remember those questions I asked you at the beginning? What are you living for? What's your purpose? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? What's the driving force behind all that you do? Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so overwhelmed with gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. Father, I pray that of the folks that are here right now, that you would speak to all of our hearts concerning the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives. Yes, we praise you that it saves us. We praise you that our names are written in the 